But Lord, we thank you that we can gather together and we can sit under the means of grace today on a Sunday. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you did not leave us with subjective desires or feelings to know who you were or who you are, but rather you gave us the objective word of God and that we can know you truly. Heavenly Father, we pray for the saints around the world. We ask, Lord, that um, these messages would go out and find them and would edify them that it would give them comfort and courage and knowledge to know you and to grow in you and be conformed to the image of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting to wrap it up in Colossians here. We're going to be probably done in the next um, three or four PowerPoints. I can't exactly be sure because you never know. Sometimes you get into these verses and they get incredibly uh, involved. In just a few verses. So, but let me talk about where we're going to be going this morning. We're going to be looking at our new character in the Christian home. And I want to just show you, I'm a big believer in outlines. I just want to show you where we've been and where we're going again. Uh, first of all, remember Colossians 3, 1 through 4 talked about our association with Christ and our resulting affections. So it had to do with our love for the things of God, for the things of the scriptures, for the things of Christ. In Colossians 5 through 11, it was our disassociation with the world in a resulting hatred. And um, I wish I would have had more room on my PowerPoint because it's hatred of wicked things. Okay, It's not hatred in general for people, the world, or anything, but it's hatred of wicked things and our own sinfulness. And then, in fact, we're, this is where we are this morning, Colossians 3.12 through 4.6, that's the section anyway, we see our association with Christ and our new character. Because we are in Christ, you and I are going to think differently and now we also act differently. So that's the broad section. Let me show you narrowly how these next sections or the next scriptures are going to lay out. First of all, we have Colossians 3, 12 through 17. talks about the character of every believer. And we're going to be just finishing that last part. Now, when we get into Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1, it talks about the character within the family. And that's going to be a section where it talks about husbands, wives, children, and also even slaves. And then after that, we're going to get into back to the character of every believer. And then it's basically just farewells and kind of a benediction. And then the, the book is done. So we've, we've almost gone through all of Colossians at that point. So let's turn to verse 16 here. Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. First thing I want to talk about is this word of Christ. There is some um, debate as to whether it's what's called a subjective genitive. It's, in other words, it's the word that Christ is actually speaking, or is it the word that is about Christ? In other words, is it the Bible? Is it the gospel? And I think it's the latter. So this has to do with the word of God. So Paul is saying, let the word of God dwell richly within you. And this term dwell, it's an interesting one. It's used for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, enoikeo, and what this has to do with, friends, is the Word of God finding its home within us. Why? Well, because we're regenerate believers who love it, who dwell upon it, who think about it, who expound on it, who meditate on it, not in the sense that we're emptying our minds, but meditating in the sense that we're thinking about it constantly. And so that's the idea of that it should dwell within us in that sense. But I want to talk about this dwelling. And again, it's the same term that's used regarding the Holy Spirit, uh, who had the Romans 8:11 uh, passage? Oh, James, that's right. 
And this is about the Holy Spirit. I just want you to see how this dwelling term is used. And I might just mention a little bit about the Holy Spirit. It's a little off topic, but it came up a little bit last week. And I might just make a few mentions of it. Uh, Romans 8.11. Moreover, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his Spirit who lives in you. Yeah. So here we have the Spirit living in us. So we have to have the Word of God. If we're regenerate believers, we're going to have the Word of God residing within us. But we also have the Holy Spirit living within us. But what I want to talk about, let me just go through one more passage, and let's talk about in what sense does the Word or the Spirit dwell with us? Is it some mystical, metaphysical part? Is there actually a part of God or a part of the Word that's within us? I don't think so. What I think it has to do with is relationship, and I'll talk about that. Who had the Second Timothy 1.14? Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Yeah, and there that great deposit is, in fact, the gospel that is being referred to here in Colossians 3.16, and that Spirit now is dwelling within us. Now, last week, the concept of how does the Holy Spirit dwell within us differently now under the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. And let me just give you a scenario of how I think the New Covenant and the Old Covenant are a little bit different. And first of all, though, let's talk about, before we get into that, is how does the Holy Spirit dwell within us? Does it mean that there's a part of God that metaphysically lives in us? Now, remember, friends, according to, for instance, like Psalm 139, God is omnipresent. Remember, David says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I descend down to Sheol, you are there. Where can I go that I can flee from your presence? God is everywhere, so he's omniscient all the time. So if God is truly omnipresent, omnipresent, he's everywhere, okay? In what sense, then, is he with us differently? And it's one of relationship. Are you with me? So, for instance, think about this. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. So God is angered with sinners. He cannot be, in a sense, in their presence, in the sense that he will lash out against them, But you and I, according to Romans 5, we have now been reconciled to Christ, okay? And because we have been reconciled to Christ, the Holy Spirit in relationship to us, he's no longer angry with us, but yet we are now considered friends. Who had Romans 5, 1 and 8 through 11? Verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Yeah, so now we've been reconciled. We are now at peace with God. And in fact, we are no longer his enemies. So in a real sense, the Holy Spirit now is in a relationship with us where he's no longer angry. There's no more wrath bent against us. Now, how does the New Testament or New Covenant concept of God dwelling with us differ than the Old Covenant? Let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, think about the idea of God with us. In the Old Testament, God would demonstrate his being with his people primarily through theophanies. During the Gospels, it's through Christ himself. In the New Testament era, or I should say in the church era that we're living in now, it's through the Holy Spirit. Okay, do you see that transition? Think about this. In the Old Testament, 
there were a few people that the Holy Spirit came upon and God would dwell with. Okay, so for instance, in Numbers eleven sixteen through seventeen, you're going to see that it just came upon a few who had the Numbers passage. And the reason again why I'm getting into this is because it was brought up last time, and I want to just talk about this dwelling, this idea of the Holy Spirit, and therefore God's Word as well dwelling with us. Oh, was it Sam? Yeah, Sam had the Numbers passage. Uh, numbers eleven sixteen through seventeen, and here you're going to see the the Spirit come upon the seventy elders that are going to be helping Moses. And then in verse, we're going to also do Numbers 11.29 where you're going to see Moses wish that the Holy Spirit come upon all people. And that's the promise of the new covenant. So go ahead, Sam. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, And I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Great. So now when you come to 27, there's a couple of guys that are prophesying. And Joshua actually gets angry. He says, well, that should be for you alone, Moses. And listen to Moses' response then in verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would all that the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them? Yeah, so, so the idea there is Moses wishes that the Spirit would dwell with all of God's people. So the idea is in the Old Covenant, the Spirit would come upon a few, and he would come, you, might not, you, you don't want to say necessarily sporadically, but he would come to empower a few. But in the New Covenant, God would empower many. In the Old Covenant, it was Israel-centric. In the New Covenant, it's both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, are you with me? Think about in the Old Testament, there was little evangelism. Right? There wasn't nearly as much evangelism. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wasn't as active as it is now. And think about there was no demons ever cast out in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? Think about there's no demons ever cast out in the Old Testament. I thought that was interesting. Wayne Grudem brought that up. And that's another work of the Holy Spirit. And then in Numbers 11.25, we see, in fact, let me just read Numbers 11.25 myself. You see the Holy Spirit also came upon these elders. Let me just read that again. Numbers 11.25, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the seventy elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. The idea, friends, is that the Holy Spirit would come down and would empower people, but again, it wasn't this residing or the dwelling. So my point being with all this is the Holy Spirit now dwells within us or dwells with us in the sense that we have relationship. And all, the same thing occurs with the Word of God. The Word of God is to dwell with us constantly and richly. Okay? Now, with that, let me just keep moving on here. Within you, this is a little bit of a debate. Within you, that's plural. Does it mean that the Word of God is going to be in each and every one of us or corporately as a body? Well, it's both. Within you is both individuals and the community. A lot of times in theology, people get into absurd debates where they'll say, for instance, this N.T. Wright is saying salvation isn't individual, it's for the corporate body. Well, of course, the corporate body is made of individuals. Isn't that obvious? It's not either or, it's both. And so we see the same thing here. So anytime you see debates that talk about, well, it's only for individuals or it's only for the community, just realize that it's, it's really both. The, the community is always made up of individuals. Now we come to true wisdom from the Word again. And uh, notice it says, with all wisdom, 
And notice that this wisdom, friends, that we see in verse 16, it stands in contrast to the pseudo-wisdoms of the heretics that were teaching the Colossian heresy that we see in Colossians 2.23. Did anybody have the Colossians 2.23 passage? Oh, you had that one too, Robert? Thanks. Colossians 2.23. These matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Yeah, they don't, they don't help. They don't do anything. It's self-made religion, and it's the appearance of wisdom. That is, the heretics were saying what you really need is protection from the stoichia, and in order to do that, you have to invoke these angels. You have to engage in ascetic practices. And to them, there was great wisdom in it, but of course it was bankrupt. So what God is calling us to hear is real wisdom, and it's the wisdom that stems from the scriptures, not from man's own ideas uh the term psalms here we know that's referring to the old testament psalms in fact the word is psalmas and so you can see even in greek it sounds like psalms that we say and we see the same term used as or referring to the old testament psalms in luke 20 verse 42 and 24 44 and then the spiritual songs i looked at a greek lexicon and they just they made a good point that these are hymns that are music with religious content so this has the idea with singing of what God has done for us. And so notice we're to be admonishing one another with these psalms. Yeah, Larry's got something. Singing and admonishing to each other, teaching each other, exhorting one another. Yeah, go ahead. Would some of these spiritual songs be something like what Paul written in like uh, Philippians 2, 5 or 1 Timothy 3, 16? Yeah. Yeah, do you want to I read? I mean, those are, those are uh, pre-written you know, those existed, I guess, before Yeah, exactly, Paul they're creedal. I think you're right. I think that that's, um, they would be part of the corpus that he'd be probably thinking oh, Corpus of. Christi. Yeah, of Corpus That's right. Oh, Car- Carmen Christi. That's what it was, Carmen Christi. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, we're looking read for that. what, Philippians Yeah, 2, read the 5? Philippians, yeah. Okay. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, and a lot of scholars think that it was an early creed and it may have even been a song. So just think about that. That may have been one of the songs that perhaps Paul was thinking of. Yeah, Bob's got some. Actually, right in Colossians, in Colossians 1, there's a Christ hymn. Hymn, that's right. There's a Christ hymn that's poetic in a sense of the Greek. Yeah. And so when Paul is talking about hymns and psalms and what have you, there may very well have been one right in Colossians. That's right. And so if that's going to be informing us about what God expects in our worship, yeah. our psalms, or songs and hymns and what have you should have content that teaches us Christian doctrine Amen. and teaches us about the person and work of Christ. And that's the right. more so, the better. That's right. And that's I love the worship that these guys put together here because we do a lot of songs that have to do with what Christ did um, who he is. Remember, the gospel is always about who he is and what he's done for us. And a lot of those songs, I just love the ones that they've been choosing. Yeah, go ahead. I just think it's kind of important to emphasize that all throughout the whole 
Old Testament. Never does it say the Holy Spirit went within. Mm. Always just upon, and he would leave. He never stayed. So we are very blessed. What happened after Christ died, and he said to wait for the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to come within you. And we are very blessed. Amen. You know, I agree. The one thing I'm a little cautious about is, remember in Psalm 51 where David prays, he says, do not allow the Spirit to depart from me. And remember in 1 Samuel, the Spirit does depart from, for instance, Saul. The debate, though, is does the Spirit in the Old Testament really ever depart from, uh, from true believers? And I don't know if you can make the case that it does. But the point is, is in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit isn't put upon as many people. It's just Jews. And it's just a few for a specific task often. However, we know that even the believers have to be regenerated in order to believe. The point is, is what we know in the New Covenant is the Spirit dwells within Jew or Gentile, within all believers. And it's a ministry where, like you said, it's greater in power. We have more evangelism today. That's the most important thing. So, yeah, there, it, it's, but we're going to talk about that topic. I think that's a great topic, and we're going to have to talk about that again. So, yeah, Keith. Just one point. If we look at the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his disciples, he breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. It's not yeah. like they didn't have any Holy Spirit because yeah. they were believers. But when Jesus went away, who embodied the Holy Spirit and, and was a theophany in the flesh, yeah. the disciples hid away in the upper room. Yeah. They weren't evangelizing anybody. Presumably they're still saved, but they're huddling in the upper room. Yeah. And when Jesus then ascended and went to the Father and brought his own blood to the real altar in heaven and put his own blood truly on the true tabernacle in heaven, then God released his Holy Spirit in the same way the curtain was torn in the temple down here. The Holy Spirit was able to come out in a way because the true blood of Christ had really been shed and embody people or fill people. And the result was speaking in tongues. But the tongues, what they were proclaiming in every language there was the glories of God. And then Peter got up and spoke in and again, Hebrew or Aramaic and yeah. delivered a sermon that proclaimed the glories of God. So exactly. it was a more of a magnitude of what was being said. The same Holy Spirit on these believers that were huddled in the upper room yeah. now comes out. And these very same people are speaking in every language the glories of God and speaking a sermon that brought people into the Christ. That's right. And, and Christ is proclaimed and his name is glorified. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute here. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's a good segue, actually. Um, so the fact is, in verse 17, we see that we should glorify God in everything. And so look at what Paul says here. He says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice this idea of word and deed, or first of all, whatever, the, uh, means all things. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, the same thought is applied here, where the idea is whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Who had the 1 Corinthians 10.31 passage? Oh, yeah, Keith. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, everything. And we're going to talk about that. This is going to be our application verse. I want to talk about something when we get to the end, how everything in life, in a sense, glorifies God. And therefore, you and I as believers should partake in glorifying God in everything. We'll talk more about this. But let's move on and talk about word and deed. The rabbis in the New Testament period were concerned that, um, and especially those of the Pharisees, that your deeds had to meet your doctrine. 
Okay, and so um, a lot of scholars believe that this is the idea of rabbinic concern, that yes, unless you, uh, your deeds meet your doctrine, you don't have true faith. And of course, that's a biblical notion, isn't it? Um, notice it's through him that everything we do that's pleasing to God, whether it be giving thanks, is through Jesus Christ. And this is actually what's called a preposition, again, of agency. In other words, unless we're doing it in Christ, we've been saved. Unless you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, it's not through him. Okay, and therefore your giving thanks to God really isn't received. It's not applicable. There's only one way to do anything pleasing to God, whether it's praising him, giving him thanks, worshiping. It's through Christ. He is the one and only mediator and the only way that you can be pleasing or do anything pleasing in the sight of God is through Christ. That's the only way. And so I just had 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And that was Larry? That was you? Yeah. This is the Christ being the one mediator between God and man. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Amen. Wow. Well said. So, yeah, there's one mediator. So it's no, no other way to be pleasing to God other than through Christ. Now, the other thing I want to point out is the name, how important the name is. The name represents the entirety of the person's character. So you remember Bob preached a sermon in Exodus 20, verse 7, about the third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The idea would be not just that we don't cuss or use his word falsely in an oath, but that we live in such a way that we don't take his name upon ourselves and live where we actually bring blaspheming upon his name. Okay, It's far greater the commandment and its implications than the mere not using his name as a cuss word. If I start living in sin, I bring disrepute upon his name, and I am the one who called out by Christ bearing his name I am bearing his reputation and in, in his character in some sense, okay? Now, in Matthew 6, 9, remember Jesus, the model prayer that he gives? Remember, he tells, uh, it's, we call it the Lord's Prayer. In, in the beginning, he says, hallowed be thy name. Why? Because the name represents the character of God, who he is, and what he has done. In fact, I want to talk about how it relates to that sermon that Keith was talking about in the book of Acts, because the primary thing that Peter is laying out at Pentecost is who is the name of the Lord. And he proves in this sermon that the name of the Lord is Jesus. And therefore, everything that's associated with who Jesus is and what he has done is of utmost utmost importance because that's who God is. And that's who people must call on in order to be saved. Let me actually show you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. And I want to start in verse 16. And I want to just show you how this is structured because you're going to see how important the name of Jesus is in this sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Now remember, people that are in this upper room, they think these guys are drunk because they're speaking in tongues. But Peter refutes that idea. Verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So remember, he's saying what you're seeing is what Joel was speaking about. It's this is that. And this is what he says. Now he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and it says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Okay, and again, that's what we're talking about, the Spirit going out, the new covenant to all people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So it's not just for the 70 elders. It's for all people. And your young men will see visions. Again, it's not just for the elders. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, 
and they will, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, what Peter now engages in is something called Midrash. It is a Hebrew uh, scheme of interpretation where what he is going to do is he just quoted an Old Testament passage and now he is going to focus on the very last verse. And what is the last verse that he left off on? is the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What he is going to do in this sermon is prove, well, who is that name? What is the name of the Lord? So let me just show you how this is structured. Okay, let me. this is a structure now of how the sermon is laid out. And again, Peter is going to be proving that the name of the Lord is Jesus. So he starts out in verse 23, and he says that this Jesus is the one whom you have crucified. Okay, now you're going to see a chiastic structure. It's going to be very parallel. This will all make sense when you see it on the screen. The next section is in B here, David. It's talking about David here because the prophecy is from Psalm 16, 8, and it's the Lord is at my right hand. Okay, now listen to how this unfolds then. In C, in verse 29... What Peter teaches is that, well, yes, David died. In other words, this passage in Psalm 16 cannot apply to David. Why? Because in verse 29, David is dead. Okay? Later in this structure, in this sermon, you're going to see it can't apply to David because he has ascended. But the point is on C that I have before you, the, the passage of Psalm 16, 8 through 10 cannot apply to David. It must apply to Christ. Are you with me? Okay. Let's move on. And I don't have, it's a little abbreviated. I can get you a fuller one, but I had to fit it all on here. So the next thing we see in F here is Christ is enthroned in verse 30, verse C. In fact, that enthronement comes from Psalm 89, 3 through 4. Listen to the psalm. He says, I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed. Remember, that's Zerah. Remember the collective noun, meaning the one and the many. So, of course, it's messianic. He will establish his seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So the idea then is it's Christ who is enthroned. So this is about Jesus. That is Psalm 16. Okay, and then he continues. We get to G. Again, David foresaw Christ, and then later you're going to see the 12 testify, and this is in verse 31a. So the point is, is somebody's giving testimony for Jesus. And who is it here? Well, here it's David in verse 31a. But later, you're going to see the 12 testify. Then we get to H. Jesus is raised from the dead, verse 31b. And, of course, the idea there is that that obviously would be one of the supreme evidences that he is, in fact, the Lord. And then, finally, the coup de grace, what it all, uh, this is the final evidence, the greatest piece of evidence that we have. Jesus' body did not rot, verse 31cd. In other words, his body isn't in the tomb, but David's is. Okay, Psalm 16.10 says, that the Holy One would not see decay. This is the supreme evidence that Jesus is the one who is Lord and therefore you should call upon his name. Now we start coming the other way in the structure. Again, we see that Jesus is raised from the dead, verse 32a. Remember in G up above? Up here it was David foresaw Christ, right? He was the one who spoke of him coming. 
Well, down here it's the 12 testifying in verse 32. But there's this testimony. David testified beforehand. The 12 testify after. But there's testimony that it's Jesus, it's th- that he is the Christ. And then we come to the fact that Christ again is enthroned in 33a. And then we come to David again died or he did not ascend. In this case, it's that he did not ascend. And therefore, if he didn't ascend, Psalm 110.1 couldn't apply to him. That's the idea. Are, are you with me? And then we come back out, and it says, David, here again, the Lord is at my right hand. Okay, and that's 34b. And again, that's Psalm 110.1. Okay, so again, the Lord is at my right hand. And then finally, we have the one whom you crucified. And of course, it's Jesus. So what you see here is that the supreme evidence of Jesus being the Christ, being God, who we should call upon, is that his body didn't rot. Wow. Yeah, it, he didn't rot. Yeah. And oh, Bob's got something on that. Well, it, Luke is amazing. Because he is. <laughs> the, the book of Luke is full of the same structure of inverse parallelism, where you go, and whenever you have an inverse parallelism like this yeah. in Luke Acts, the emphatic position is the first, the last, in the middle. In the middle, yep. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that Well neat? done. I hadn't seen that before. Well, I, I, it's not me, you guys. By the way, um, you're going to be seeing this because it was our buddy. Um, I got it from an IVP commentary. When I was teaching Acts to our teenagers, I saw this, and I was like, oh, of course. you know. And I was thinking, you guys, I can't write this well today. And we always think people are somehow superior today you know, in knowledge and our expertise and things. And I think... You know, I could never write something so profound, right? These guys were very good writers, these apostles. And, of course, it's inspired as well. But, again, that's how important the name of Christ was. And that's why, again, the last verse Peter leaves off on in Joel 2.32 is, All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. His sermon is proving that it was Jesus and it's his, it's his name. That's how important the name of Christ is. Again, it represents who he is in what he has done. And the ultimate proof that we have today is his body is not in the tomb, but David is still stinking it up. Okay? <laughs> Sorry, I wish I could say something more theological than that, but that's, that's the fact. Psalm 1610, the Holy One would not see decay. And by the way, you guys, I think that that is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, because after the third day, decay sets in to the Jewish mind. That's why in John chapter 11... Remember, Martha says, "Don't Lord, don't take Lazarus out uh, because he's, stin- he's stinking up. It's been four days. You see, decay has set in. But this proves that, no, Jesus never saw decay because on the third day, according to the Scriptures, he had to be raised. And I think Paul had in mind the Psalm 1610. So anyway, the name of Jesus is extremely important. Now, let's move on to the character of the Christian home. Uh, verses 18 through 19 Paul continues, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. It's interesting. (laughs) This is, well, first of all, let me show you. It's interesting how this lays out. I want to be a little cautious because I've got a lot of gals in here. But friends, realize... (laughs) But... um, but realize that this is this is what I want to want just want you to all see is that it's very tough on the, the um, well let me just put out my grid here and you'll understand what I'm saying. What we see in the scriptures is we have people that have to submit and then we have people that have responsibility to those who are submitting to them, and it, God is actually going to judge more harshly those who have the responsibility of being decent to those who submit. Are you with me? So if you, if you're a gal, don't think that you're getting the raw end of the deal, if you will. Okay, men are going to be judged even. Um, 
greater in the sense because they're um, the ones who have the responsibility. So the idea is you have wives who have to submit to husbands, you have children who have to submit to fathers and mothers for that matter, and you have slaves. But you see the side of submitting and the side of responsibility. Now, the idea of subject, this is what I think is a little ironic. This is an imperative, hupatasso. And what's interesting is Paul is commanding them to be willingly obedient, <laughs> okay? So it's the idea you must be willingly obedient. It's kind of like saying praying for patience and you want it now. You know, it's, it's kind of that kind of, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like jumbo shrimp or whatever, you know, it's these oxymorons. But I just thought that was kind of ironic. But nonetheless, Paul is commanding something that they must do. Now, notice it's interesting, the love your wives. Now, what you're going to see here is that Paul is asking men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that cuts me, this is the one that cuts me. I, I tell you, friends, think about it, You, especially you guys, you husbands, we have to love our wives as Christ loved the church so much so that he gave his life for the church. And that is, you talk about being conformed to the image of Christ and God's word convicting you, that gets me. Okay, and so realize, gals, you're not giving the raw end of the deal. This is very difficult. And of course, only by God's grace can we even approach these things. But who had Ephesians 5, 25 through 32? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Yeah, I love that. First of all, notice no one ever hated his own flesh. The idea is if you hate your wife, you hate yourself. Why? Because we become one flesh. Right? It comes from Genesis 127. What's neat about Genesis 127 is you have the plur- God is one, yet he's plural. We have one God in three persons. We have man, Avam, which is, you know, he's, he's a man, he's a male, but is also male and female, plural. Are you with me? So in some sense, the plurality of mankind reflects the glory of God. But yet we come as one. We become one flesh. And yet we're actually modeling the coming of Christ for his church and how he loved the church. And so that's, you and I, every time we love our wives or we marry, it is in some sense a portrayal of what Christ has done and will do for his church. And I'm going to talk about that, a little bit more about that in the last slide. But let me keep moving on here. The term embittered, it's very interesting because it's in the passive. And embittered is, it comes from um, pikranesta, which is a passive indicating that the embitterment starts in the mind and is acted out against the wife. So, in other words, remember active voice, I hit the ball. Passive voice, the ball hits me. So this embitterment is happening to the man. But the idea is that then he acts on it. In other words, because he's becoming embittered, then he becomes angry with the wife. So the point is, this is a great application point, is you and I, men, uh, need to watch when we become embittered or angry with our wives. Okay, why? Because we end up acting out. Um, The hatred of our wives or the embitterment it's our problem, okay? 
And we should love our wives so much so that we're willing to even sacrifice for her. That's the idea. So is the issue, if I fail to love or fail to act, then I'm the subject of embitterment? Is there a cause and effect? Yeah, I, I, you know, I never thought of that, but you're right. In other words, what comes first? Is so, it the so embitterment? It, my, the, my, the, the void that's left there because I fail to love? Is filled with embitterment? Yeah, that's very... I didn't think of that, Keith. That's very possible, yeah. It, it, in other words, is it the embitterment that leads you not to love or is it the lack of love that leads you to embitterment? I don't... I mean, it's both and, probably. Yeah. Right. And again, by God's grace, friends, it's only by God's grace that any of us can love our wives as God has called us to. Yeah, Larry, you hit some. You mentioned that Ephesians passage, and there's a couple of Greek words in there, and I don't know if has, this has much play in it, but one is yeah. hupodeknomai, and the other oh, one is yeah. hupotasso. Yeah. I believe in uh, 521. And I've yeah. heard that that passage represents that I submit to the so, wife's need, but I don't submit to her lead because she's not called to lead. That's right. And that's, that's an example of Christ because Christ led the church, and it's unthinkable that the church would lead Christ. Exactly. And that's, that's the hardest right. command that God gives men because they knew he would stroke, men would struggle with it. I mean, he wouldn't give them something that's an easy command to do. He'd give them something that he needs the Holy Spirit to yeah. carry out, and that's love their wives. That's right. But you're right. The, the loving doesn't entail that we're being led but rather we're leading in love. That would be the idea. Of servant leadership. Yeah, servant leadership, exactly. Yep. Yeah, well said. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob, you got well, something. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. But no, no. Uh, when it comes to husbands and wives and loving and yeah. these sort of relationships, the big enemy is uh, selfishness. Mm. And the idea that any one of us might get in our mind that what we are owed is happiness all the time. Mm, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so if you start, if you're thinking like the world, you're thinking, okay, everybody around me is supposed to make me happy. Yeah. And the most important person in your life is your wife, and you're not happy, then that's her problem. Yeah. That is right. not Christian thinking. Yeah, amen. You know, we're not on the face of the earth to be happy. That's right. Okay, That's right. Uh, happiness is a byproduct of other things like being in right relationship with God and the people around us. That's right. And so if we are taking action to love our wives and have her best interest in mind, we're not thinking, well, she's not making me happy. And yeah. I see people get that kind of thinking, and that's what derails the relationships. Yeah, and we see it right in the garden. You know, Bob, I was thinking as you're saying that, you know, lack of contentment. Yeah. And this idea that somehow life is about being happy. You know, you think about Adam and Eve. They had it all in the garden. They had every single thing, every tree that they could eat of except one. And, of course, they found that outrageous. You know? It's they were, not fair. It's not fair. We have this one that we can't eat of. And it is. Lack of contentment is huge in the problems within the marriage. And it has to do with this idea of happiness, like you're saying, Bob. And there's something more important, and that is living for the glory of, of Christ and living for the glory of God. And, friends, living for the glory of God is only something that a Christian has a desire to do. Do you know, notice that the unbelieving world, they really don't care to glorify God? It's about them. It's about their happiness. I mean, I mean, isn't it just obvious? And even in my own life, there's times when it's about me as well. So even, you know, I'm simultaneously just justified yet still a sinner. So we see the old man crop up. But nonetheless, this is the high calling that we're called to. But anyway, for the sake of time, let me keep moving because I, um, there's some other interesting things here with the children in the home. And here in verse 20 through 21, Paul continues to says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I want to talk about this idea of obeying. And here it comes from Hupakuo. Akua has to do with listen, 
And this idea of hupakuo means to listen and obey. That's what children are called to do. But think about this, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. That goes all the way back, of course, to Exodus 20, verse 12. Okay, And it's the fifth commandment in the scriptures. And the term there that we see for honor, it's kabeth. And it's also applied to God, that we should honor God in that way. So this idea of kabeth has the idea of making one weighty. So literally, in the fifth commandment, people are called to make their mothers and fathers weighty in their presence, to think of them as a weighty one. Why is that significant? Because these people that are parents, mothers and fathers, are in some sense vicars for God. And that's why you see the promise, your father and mother were to honor them, kabeth, that your days may be prolonged in the land. Look throughout the Ten Commandments and you'll see that that's the only commandment that has a promise attached to it. It's extremely significant. And one of the indicators of sin to the Israelites is when they, the people stopped obeying or, or um, honoring their fathers and mothers. But notice, friends, notice we're not called to love our mother and father. Isn't that interesting? Did I give Leviticus 19.3 out to anybody? I don't know if I gave that one out. Let's, um, Leviticus 19.3, just turn there real quick. You see an interesting parallel or counter... Let's see here, 19.3. You're going to see an interesting contrast. Leviticus 19.3, the Lord says, Every one of you shall reverence, and that is Yahweh, you shall fear. You shall fear your parents, okay, his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. But now turn to 19.18. And here it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor. Isn't it interesting? We're called to love our neighbor, but to fear our parents. Okay, yeah, Keith. Yes, good. That's a great catch. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, did anybody hear that? Keith pointed out that women are also not admonished or instructed to love their husbands. Maybe it's because we're not always lovable, right? But, um, no, but you're to submit to us. But yet, men, yeah, step too far. That went beyond what Keith, I don't want to apply that to Keith. Um, but yet, men are called to love our wives. It's interesting, isn't it? So the point being, friends, is that mothers and fathers to children stand as vicars in some sense of God, okay? And if they are going to be disobeyed, and if they're going to be treated without reverence, that is a bad sign in a society. And how often do we see that today? Boy, I've seen some kids now... Granted, my little guy's little, and I may eat these words, but I've seen some kids rule the roost. Are you with me? Okay? And the point is, that's a sign where the mothers and fathers are not revered. Friends, if you're a parent out there, you are not called to be your child's friend. You're to be a vicar of God in some sense. Okay? You're to be revered and feared. And that's how we apply this. Let me bring it down a little bit further. That means, friends, that we always, as mothers and fathers, look out for their best and don't long for their loving us. Are you with me? The reason why is if we're always looking out for their best, whether it be spiritual, physical, then you and I are willing to say the tough things, do the difficult things, because we know from the Scriptures we're to be revered, not necessarily loved. Now, in most cases, of course, they'll go hand in hand. And, of course, we all want to be loved by our kids. But that's not our job. Our job is to be vicars of God in some sense and teach them the ways of the Lord. So we can gather those things from, I think, these passages. 
Okay. Whoops, I missed something there. Oh, exasperate um, here. Just the term just literally means to make resentful. We do not want to make our children resentful. So the idea, again, is let's not use our power just to um, obviously beat up on our children. Again, it's everything is for their good. We are in some sense like God, and God certainly would not exasperate his children, so either should we. Now, in application, I want to bring something. I'm, gonna, um, I'm a little indebted to a professor at Northwestern College for this idea, and, it, and I'll kind of go through it as we get into it. But let me just bring you to a couple of passages, Colossians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 10.31. The summary of these two passages is that we should do everything for the glory of God. Okay, And I want you to see from this application life a little bit differently, the different things that happen to you in life and the different institutions that we have. Let me just go through this a little bit. Do everything for the glory of Jesus. Think about this. Moses made the tabernacle after a pattern in Exodus 25:40. So the point is the tabernacle that we had on earth was made after what was the real one in heaven. Are you with me? Okay. Now think about this paradigm. Marriage, according to Ephesians 5:32, should point to the pattern of Christ and the church. So in some sense, marriage is a pattern as well. So what is it really? It's pointing to a greater reality, okay? Three, children should have a father patterned after their heavenly father. So how do, uh, how do children know in some sense what the heavenly father is like? Well, because they have a vicar, they have a father here. Are you with me? So it's the lesser father in some sense is pointing to the ultimate father. And so you see these institutions throughout scripture Slaves should have a master patterned after the heavenly master. Remember we saw an admonishment that masters of slaves should treat their slaves well. Why? Because they have a master in heaven as well. Okay? So, friends, think about these institutions in life. And sometimes we as Americans, we say, well, you know, that slavery is unfair. And it is. But what if God allowed some of these institutions, even if they're unfair, to point to a greater reality? to point to say we have a pattern here, but there's a greater reality in heaven. Now remember Old Testament and New Testament slavery was different than slavery in America. Slavery in America was predicated on racism. Old Testament and New Testament slavery often had to do with just people being poor. They couldn't afford their bills. They had to sell themselves into service. Okay, And in fact, if the slaves were gotten rid of, the whole economies would have faltered. In fact, it would have been bad for the slaves. So are you with me? Slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the same. Nonetheless, it is optimal to be a free man. Yet God allowed slavery because in some sense, we know what it is to have a master because we've seen earthly masters. We know something of what it's going to be like when Christ unites with his church because we see it all the time when a man unites with a woman in marriage. We know what it is to have a heavenly father because we have an earthly father. So the point is, friends, in every single institution in life, what if it is, in fact, that everything is used or designed to point to the glory of God? And, in fact, that's what I think is going on. So the point is, no matter what you do, if you're a baker, if you're a, a, a whatever you do, if you're a mechanic, do it all for the glory of God. In some sense, every single thing we do points to his glory. And I think that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everything, anything that you do, is in some sense reflecting of God's glory if done in his name and, of course, all by his grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that, uh, let's just open it up to some questions, comments, show ideas. Uh, Wayne. Wayne's got some. Actually, i got a couple of things. One is back to the technicalities of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Yeah. Um, And maybe you've talked about this in prior weeks, in which case, uh, excuse me, but uh, we've talked in the past 
decades about Jesus living in your heart. Sure. Which is taken from Ephesians 3.16, yeah. that Christ may dwell in you. 3.15 yeah. talks about the Holy Spirit doing it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the technicality is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. So the question is, how does he dwell within our hearts? How do, you know, and we've gotten away from that term, using that term, Jesus yeah. living in your heart, because technically the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart. Would you agree with that? Yeah, exactly. In fact, Peter, the Apostle Peter, often used the Spirit of Christ as synonymous with the Holy Spirit in his two epistles. It's interesting, though, the thing that I'm driving at, Wayne, with the idea of the Holy Spirit or Christ dwelling within us is the idea that it's not that it's somehow metaphysically God is somehow present, like there's some there's a, a chip that's God in us, but it's the idea that God is omnipresent, but in me, because of the shed blood of Christ, his righteousness and my faith in him, now I am in a relationship with him where he's no longer angry. And so in some sense, like Keith is talking about, remember the sending of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends? Now don't quote me on this, but I wonder if, you know, here Christ is among us sinners. He dwelt among us, uh, John 1.14. Well, how is it that God can dwell among sinners? Well, in his, his state where he took upon flesh, Maybe it's that God won't lash out against us in that state. But what's interesting is you notice that he could not send the Holy Spirit until he ascended. I always wondered, well, why? And we're not really given an answer in Scripture, but let me just give you a hypothesis. Perhaps because finally people are made by the imputed righteousness of Christ and his shed blood, were made by faith in Christ, compatible where the Holy Spirit now can live in our presence in a unique sense, in other words, relationally, where he won't lash out against us, his wrath. I don't know. That's how, there's nowhere it's stated, but it's interesting those things that you bring up. Yeah, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ are often used interchangeably. We know Christ, the hypostatic union, he's going to be forever God and forever man. So he'll always have a body from here on out. And yes, he is truly at the right hand of the Father, yet in some sense the Holy Spirit is now present with us. So Christ is present with us through the Holy Spirit is a way of looking at it, yeah. And then changing, changing subjects uh, completely to the family and the, the verses on being subject and, love, and husbands loving their wives. And that has been blown so many different ways that, um, I, you know, what, I, what I've said through the, through the years is one thing, one thing to remember is nowhere has a husband has been told, well, husbands, make sure your wives are subject to you. Yeah, and the other the other thing right. is, so much of loving your yeah. wife, so much of loving anyone is yeah. so much sacrifice. Yeah, amen. And so when the when the husband father is is it's all about me. You need to be subject to me, and and not sacrificing for the good of the family, good for yeah. the children, good of the wife. Things just really go wrong. Amen. Well said. I just had to, yeah exactly. You know, last week we talked in First John. Jesus was the ultimate sign of love because he was a propitiation. He loved us so that he became he subject to the wrath of God on our behalf. That's the kind of sac- Not that we can ever be subject to the wrath of God for anyone, but the idea is that we sacrifice. And you're right, love isn't wrapped up into that concept. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. I just like learning about that everything in, that God has made, we've kind of ruined. And we, yeah. And, and it's whether it's marriage, because he had a, he had a marriage plan for the church and yeah. for his bride and, and, and just his attitude for 
I can't use these things. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, just it's just the more I the more I read and the more you point out things and yeah, it's just we stink everything up here. Like we said, do, we, and we can't do anything. And it's yeah, it, the parallels go on and on and on. Everything you see in life that looks good, that we destroy it. I mean, it's, an idea can start out great, and we'll find some way to we'll wreck cheat it. Or, right. Or, that's why the whole, I think about that passage, the whole creation groans. You know, and I think about that, all these things. You know, marriage, marriage being a symbol of Christ coming for his church. You look in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech, it's very subtle, but it says that he said to his wives, plural, and he has two. Well, he's deviating from Genesis 127, that a man should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. So right away, like you're saying, it's destroying what God has made and destroying, therefore, the picture between Christ and the church, yeah. It's not two different people. In other words, when Christ comes for his people, it's one people. It's not many people. He's coming for one, isn't he? Um, so it's both Jew and Gentile. We're one people. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it gets destroyed through. Yeah, Patrick. You, um, I think we need to be really careful. I hope you agree with me. Uh, even today, <laughs> even today in this society, um, yeah. you, you characterized... Slavery is unfair. I would characterize it as a terrible, wretched, heinous evil that anyone who participated in I is agree. guilty of a her- terrible sin. Do you, do you agree? I do agree. And, and sorry for my poor choice of words. One of the reasons why I was, what I'm, in my mind, I'm caught between American slavery and then slavery of the Old and New Testament. But both were evil, right? Well, what I would say this, Patrick, is that they're a little different in that Old and New Testament slavery was often economic whereas slavery today was racial. So I'm, I, if someone could make someone their economic slave and that was not sinful? Well, in fact, what we see in the Old Testament, Patrick, is a lot of times the slaves that actually sell themselves into a family in order so that they could survive, and it was actually a lot of times beneficial for the slave. In fact, some of the slaves were treated extremely well. Now, that doesn't mean all slaves were. But the, my, my point, though, being, Patrick, is that slavery in America was extremely wretched because what people were saying is that there were some men who were made in the image of God but who are somehow inferior. And based on that, we can treat them any way we want. Now, remember, I think macroevolution plays into the idea of slavery because if men evolved from amoeba to man, certainly some men probably evolved further than others. And that was the mindset that led to slavery. What you and I as Christians are saying is, no, all men are made in the image of God and therefore are valuable, and how dare you treat somebody who's made in the image of God that way. So you see what I'm saying? But sure. in, in the Old Testament, it was sometimes beneficial for people. It wasn't based on race. It was based more on need of the slave and the owner. Yeah. But isn't it a terrible sin to, because someone owes you money or well, can serve you in that way, to well, subjugate God, them and violate all their human rights? God allowed it, for instance. God allowed for, it, but it's, it's still Right, evil. but he allowed it for the Hebrews. But remember on the year of Jubilee yeah. and on the Sabbath years, then they had to be let go. So there was a provision to allow the Hebrews, but that provision never extended, interestingly enough, to the Gentiles. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'll just keep quit. Yeah. If you look on at slavery, especially the Old Testament slavery and what's painted there as yeah. an economic situation yeah. and saying it's evil, then the distribution of wealth, if it's not equitable, we're saying it's evil as well. Yeah. God gave some people money. God holds, withholds that. It's God gives the power to create wealth. And the fact that the world is unequal, from our yeah. perspective, doesn't give us the right to point at God. It's just like, does the clay have the right to say to the potter, you're wrong? Exactly. And I think that taking this aspect and say, we demand 
that the world be economically equal right now, yeah. and if it isn't, it's evil, is not what the scripture says, and I think that it's a it's a poor outlook. It's not a Christian worldview. The world is unequal economically, and God has commands for the rich to be generous, yeah. and he has commands for the poor not to be envious, not to steal, yeah. and vice versa. I suppose you could have it, those, those hard attitudes applied both ways, but the fact there's economic inequalities does not make it evil. That's right. I, I think you're right, yeah. I think if you change how you look at the Old Testament term slavery and, and look at it like viewing, entering into a long-term employment contract, that is somewhat binding. It is, but, yeah. But well still said. a long-term employment contract. Yeah. Then you change your whole viewpoint of that. Yeah, that's right. Um you know, I look at a U.S. Marine. A U.S. Marine does not make a lot of money, charges machine gun nests, um, has IEDs blow up, very difficult work, very low pay, is called to a high... You know, I mean, in some sense, um, if he leaves, he says, you know, I'm packing it in, he's arrested, you know. You know, let's be honest. I mean, so the point is, Patrick, back to your thing, though, let's just make a clear distinction. Old Testament, New Testament slavery, completely different, not racially based. Slavery in America, yeah, evil. Why? Because men in fact, were considered less than men merely because of their skin color. So I would say they're completely two different categories, yeah. I just have a question. It yeah. doesn't have to be answered. Uh, maybe somebody can address it sometime, but what are our human rights? I mean, people throw that around like, <laughs> we, you know, I'm what? I don't know. Yeah, you know what? That's a broad... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is our human right is... Um, ultimately, before God, it's to uh, perish and go to hell. That's the only right that we have. But I know what you're saying. I, I know the. Um, that's a broad question. That yeah, I'm not going to be able to get into that one. But yeah, I'm sorry. We have got one back there. And oh, there you get some. Yeah, on that question you talked about earlier about husbands yeah. and wives and all the passages that deal with it. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about it is that you said that the husbands will be judged more than the wives. Yeah, but, yeah. You know that passage in Ephesians to talk about husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands yep. equally God gave that same command to wives because it knew it would be a struggle for them to respect their husbands that's loving right. is real easy they're wired for that but to respect now that's a you know horse of a different color that's but you know that's you know I mean but it's interesting because it talks in yeah. first Peter that you know they have a co-regency because Ephesians 5:18 talk about being filled with the spirit yeah and follows on in that passage so that's, in other words, as long as they're filled with the Spirit, they reverse the effects of the fall and they become back in the co-regency again like yeah, Adam and Eve before the exactly. fall. Exactly. Right. Yeah, well said. I, yeah, and we see co-regency within, think about the, um, the idea of the Trinity. I guess we're out of time, but the idea of the Trinity, it's not that the Father is somehow more valuable than the Son. They're equally valuable. Exactly. It's just that the one submits. We have the subordination within the Trinity, and that's all. So it means that they're completely equal, but yet different roles. That's all. Yeah. Anyway, that's it, you guys. I'm sorry, my friends. I should probably uh, use that more often. And uh, we'll see you all next Sunday.